Well, I want to welcome all of you here this morning for this uh, beautiful Lord's Day, this Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was reminded this week of some beautiful words by Soren Kierkegaard when he said, the best news the world has ever heard came from a graveyard, Christ is risen. I like that. The best news this world has ever heard came from a graveyard, Christ is risen. That's why we're here this morning, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Our Lord made uh, what some have called a cosmic comeback. And that's good news for us. That's great news. It's glorious news for us that Christ is risen. Um, It's been well said, if Jesus Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Uh, The the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the lever of life. Um, It's the hinge of history. It is the citadel of Christianity. We need to come back to it again and again as God's people and immerse our hearts and our minds in the truth of the resurrection and allow its, its magnitude to, to percolate down into our hearts and our lives. In the reading I've been doing the last couple of weeks, I ran across a statement by H.B. Charles I've never heard before. He said this, Christianity is the only religion in the world where its adherents go to the grave of its founder to make sure he's not there. That's good, isn't it? We go to the, the, the grave of our founder uh, to make sure he's not there. And uh, this morning as followers of Jesus Christ, I want us to go back to the tomb again, if you will, to make sure that our founder is not there. And to do that, I want us to look together at the the final account of the resurrection given to us by by an eyewitness. So turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This is the last of the four Gospels to be written. Uh, John wrote these words probably in in the mid-A.D. 80s. Uh, So think about this. Fifty years have gone by since John witnessed these events. He's had a long time to think about what he saw on that Easter morning. And with all the time that's gone by, John, 50 years later, still believes in the resurrection of Christ. And he wants us to join him in believing. The very last, uh, some of the last words in John chapter 20, uh, that gives the purpose statement for why John wrote this book. And he says, These things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. John believes, and he wants us to believe. In fact, if you read the book of John, you'll find the word believe 99 times in John's gospel. That's the focus. He believes. And he wants us to join him in that belief as well. So John takes us back to the tomb 50 years after the resurrection to make sure again that our founder is not there. I've titled this message this morning, uh, The Almost Empty Tomb. And you'll see why we call it that um, as we get into our passage. Let me read John uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 for us. We'll look at uh, verses 11 through 18 at the end of the message really briefly. We're going to focus on these first 10 verses. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. 
And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Well, so reads God's inspired um, inerrant word. Uh, many of you here have heard of uh, Harry Houdini, uh, the great Houdini. Um, he was uh, known for his spectacular escapes. And it was said of him that he had the flexibility of an eel and he had the lives of a cat. And uh, they would incarcerate him in all kinds of ways to see if he could escape. Uh, one time uh, or several times he was sealed in coffins and he would escape. And he was riveted in a boiler and he escaped. I mean, he was sewed up in canvas bags several different times. He would escape. Uh, they locked him in a, a large milk can. He escaped. Uh, they, they sealed him in a beer barrel. He escaped. They even put him in a maximum security prison, and old Harry somehow got out. But then in October of 1926, Harry Houdini died. And before he died, though, he told his wife, he said, if there is any way out of the grave, you can be sure that I'll find it. And he says, I'll make contact with you on the anniversary of my death. So every year at the anniversary of his death, his wife had a, a bright light placed above his portrait. She would sit there all day and all night looking at this portrait from, for, for some sign that old Harry um, had escaped the clutches of death. But as the story goes, finally at the end of 10 years, she turned out the light for good. His death had Harry and he couldn't escape. Because the only one who has ever escaped the clutches of death, never to die again, is our Lord Jesus Christ. The only one um, who's conquered death. I read something this week. I've thought about this all week. I love it. Someone said this. The great thing about Christianity is it has no skeletons in the closet. Isn't that good? There's no skeletons in the closet. It's all open. Uh, Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. Well, I want to just look at two simple points to, to take us through this passage this morning as we, we go back to the tomb again to make sure that Jesus wasn't there. I want to look at the time or the setting of our passage and then spend most of our time on, on the tomb or the seeing. We open up here with the setting. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. There, there's two phrases here that indicate the time involved. The first one is uh, the first day of the week. Uh, the Jews didn't have any names for any days of the week other than the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath, of course, Shabbat, or the Sabbath that was known as that, and the other days were just the first day, the second day, the third day. And so the first day of the week is Sunday. And this Sunday was April the 5th of A.D. 33. April the 5th of A.D. 33. And it says they come while it was still dark. So very early Sunday morning, probably 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning, they come. Now, John's account here focuses on Mary Magdalene. And we know from the other Gospels that other women were involved in this. But down at the end of verse 2, she says, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So the we there indicates there were more people with her, and we know that some other women had gone, but John just focuses here upon her. Now, people often ask, why were the women coming back to the tomb? 
People in that day normally visited the tomb of loved ones for about three days, bringing spices there and just going to see their loved one again. And of course, Jesus was crucified on Friday evening. Uh, Friday evening all through Saturday is Sabbath. So the first time these women could really come was early Sunday morning. And so they make their way there to add more spices to the body of Jesus. And remember, uh, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had to bury the body of Jesus quickly because a Sabbath was approaching. So these women are coming there to add more spices. And it says there that they come to the tomb. Um, the tombs in that day, the, the entrance was only like three or four feet tall. You'd have to stoop down to get inside. And inside there would be three ledges that were there, three rock ledges. Uh, the body would be placed there on one of those ledges. Now, when they get there, as you all know, they encounter this surprise of the stone being rolled away. The way that it's stated here in the Greek, though, some scholars say that the stone being taken away implies that it was done supernaturally, which we know it was. It was taken away by the angel. Probably this stone was lying flat on the ground. This large stone disc is just lying over there on the ground. Now, Mary, seeing all this, immediately runs back to tell the disciples that the body of Jesus is missing from the tomb. And it says in verse 3, she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Four times in the gospel accounts, there are references to people running. Just all kinds of confusion and excitement that's gripped the people as they're just running around in, in confusion and excitement about what is happening. Now, according to the other gospel accounts, the other women stayed there and investigated further while Mary Magdalene went back to tell uh, Peter and John. And verse 2 says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So she comes first to Peter's house. And then the disciple that Jesus loved is John himself. He, he never identifies himself by his name, but he calls him the, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, to me, it's interesting and, and very ironic that Jesus' followers, right at the beginning, blamed the, follow, blamed the, the, the uh, officials for stealing Jesus' body. And the officials blame Jesus' followers for stealing the body. So they're both blaming each other because nobody knows where the body is. Now, that's the time here or the setting in our passage. Now, we come to the heart of this passage, what I call the tomb or the seeing. In John's account of the resurrection, there's two things that are focused on. I like to call them the sepulcher and the seeing. Nine times in the first 11 verses, you read the word tomb, the tomb, over and over again. The focus is on this tomb or this sepulcher. And then the focus is also on what Peter and John see when they get there. So it's the sepulcher and the seeing, if you will, that John emphasizes. Now in verse 3 it says, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. Now they probably started out walking. Uh, they're walking there to the tomb, but some people believe that on the way to the tomb, they met the other women who had been there, and they were on their way back, and they told them what they had seen as well. And they get excited, and then verse 4 says, and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, this is the kind of stuff that commentators get off on, and they'll say, well, why did John get to the tomb before Peter? 
Some will say, well, John was younger than Peter, which certainly we, we know that's true. He would have been some years younger probably than Peter. Others will say, well, Peter was kind of slowed down by his guilt. You know, he didn't really necessarily want to get there because he denied the Lord and he was still feeling guilty for that. Probably the reason John got there faster is a very simple reason. He was a faster runner. I mean, he could just run faster, right? I mean, we don't need to come up with complicated things. John, they just take off, and John runs faster. I mean, Peter's this big, uh, bulky fisherman. You know, somebody says fullbacks are only good for 50 yards. So that's probably what you have here with Peter. They just, he can't get there as quickly. Now, when they get there and they look in, what they see are linen wrappings. Notice in verse 5, they saw the linen wrappings. Verse 6, there were linen wrappings lying there. Verse 7, with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. What they saw were these linen wrappings. Now, to grasp the significance of what they saw, we need to understand the burial customs of the Jews. Because if you go back up just a few verses to uh, John 19 and verse 40, it says, And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So what did Jews do when they buried someone? Well, the first thing they would do is they would, would, would straighten the body out, and then they would wash it with water. Now think about this with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking that. Just think about the battered, bruised, beaten, bloody body of the Lord Jesus. And think about what that must have looked like. They straightened out that precious body there and they washed that body uh, with water. The second thing they would do is they would bandage the body tightly from the chest area down to the ankles. And what they would do is they'd take strips of cloth about a foot wide each and wrap the body. Now, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and their accounts, they talk about Jesus being buried in a sheet. And that's where we get the idea, many people do, of the shroud of Turin, you know, this burial shroud of Jesus. The problem is Jesus wasn't buried in the sheet. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned the sheet, but John tells us that they took the sheet and ripped it into strips because they buried him according to the burial custom um, of the Jews. So what they would do is they would fold the person's arms across their torso and would start wrapping about the bottom of the armpit area and would wrap all the way down uh, to the ankles. And then the third step is they would take aromatic spices and rub it in the linen and place it in the wrappings and the foldings. And if you go back a few verses earlier to John 19.39, it says that they used a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight uh, to put upon Jesus. So, I mean, this was a lot of spices they used in these uh, linen wrappings. The fourth step is that they would take something, some cloth, kind of like almost a sweat band or a sweat rag, and they would wrap it or twirl it around the head, around the top of the head, but not the face, just the, the top of the head. And they would take one piece of that, and they would put it down underneath uh, the jaw uh, to keep uh, the chin and the lower jaw from sagging open. So the shoulders and the neck and the face were bare, the wrappings from here down, and then this wrapping that would take place uh, on top of the head. And then finally, the body then, wrapped in this way, would be placed on its back and laid on one of these ledges inside one of these uh, limestone caves or tombs. And again, it was done according, John emphasizes, to the burial custom of the Jews. Now, this is significant because it ties in with what Peter and John see when they get there. 
In verse 5, it's referring here now to John, the disciple. He gets there first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Now, the word saw there is a simple word in Greek to see something, but it means kind of the idea of a simple seeing or a glance or just kind of taking a quick look at something. So John stooped down and looked in and just took kind of a a quick initial glance at the evidence of what was there. Now, while John was standing there trying to make sense out of this, Peter shows up probably huffing and puffing here out of breath. And verse 6 says, So Simon Peter also came following him, and he entered the tomb and saw the linen wrappings lying there. So Peter gets there, and only impetuous, confident Peter, we can see him kind of pushing John out of the way, and he's going to go in there. And he goes in, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there. Now, that word for see is a different word than the word in verse 5. The word in verse 6 here, where, where Peter sees, is the Greek word theoreo. We get our word to theorize from that. So he goes in and sees this, and he begins to ponder or theorize about what this means. Now, while he's there pondering, John comes into the tomb in, uh, in uh, verse 8. And the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then he also entered, and he saw, and he believed. And the word used there for saw, or, or the word to see, means to perceive or to recognize with understanding. So John gets there and he takes a glance inside and and stays out there. Peter comes in and he looks at it and he's trying to process this. He's theorizing and meditating on what it means. John comes in and he sees it. And when he sees it, uh, he believes. And so really John the Apostle becomes what we might call here the very first Christian. He's the very first person to believe uh, in the resurrected Christ. I don't want to get off on this this morning, but I thought of something last night. You know, really in some ways, verse uh, 5 and verse 6 and verse 8, these three different words used that mean to see kind of in many ways uh, kind of uh, summarize for us really the responses of people everywhere. That first response where John just looks in and takes a quick glance and looks in there, that's the way a lot of people are today when it comes to the resurrection. They've heard about it, and they kind of take a quick glance at it or something, but then they they move on to the things that they think are a lot more important in life. That's probably most people. There's some people like Peter that hear about the resurrection of Jesus, and they, they theorize about it, and they think it over for a while, but they fail to grasp its significance. And then there are some, and I I pray that the vast majority of us are in this camp this morning, who, like John, they see with understanding and they believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I pray that every one of us this morning have seen with understanding and recognized, perceived that Jesus is alive. Now, we always say that one of the great historical evidences of the resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb, right? In fact, I've got my Ryrie New Testament here, Ryrie Study Bible, and right above John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, the empty tomb. That's what we always use for one of the great evidences of of the resurrection. But when John and Peter got to the tomb, the tomb wasn't actually empty, was it? Now, it was empty of the body of Jesus, but the tomb was not empty. There was something there. And whatever was there is what caused John to suddenly believe in the resurrection. 
Now, what was it they saw that was so astonishing? Well, in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8, it says they saw, or, or 5, 6, and 7, they, they see these linen wrappings that are there. Now, when you come to verse 7, though, it says, and the face cloth which had been on his head was not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, when I was growing up, and, and really in recent times, the way I've always heard this described is that face cloth or that cloth that was around Jesus' head was folded up neatly and placed over to the side somewhere by itself, which would be evidence, obviously, of resurrection. Because if somebody came and stole the body, they're not going to take time to, to neatly fold that up. Or somehow, you know, the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die and somehow staggered out of the tomb. He's not going to take time to fold that up neatly off to the side. But I don't think that's what this is referring to. It says in verse 7 that it was rolled up in a place by itself. That word literally means to wrap up or to twirl. In other words, it was twirled up in a place by itself as if his head was still in it. And the reason it says here that it was not with the linen wrappings, but by itself, is where those linen wrappings ended at the, the, the shoulders of Jesus, there would have been a gap for the neck and the face where this uh, head cloth is twirled up. So it's lying there by itself. So what they look in there and see is these linen wrappings there, and, and, and probably the, the part of the wrappings on his body had probably collapsed a little bit because of all the weight of those spices. Now, some think those spices would have hardened, so it was just like a, a hollow cocoon. But then there's a space where the shoulders and the neck and the face were, and then they see this this cloth twirled up there by itself like the shape of someone's head, but the head's not there anymore. So that's what's seen as, as they go in there. And the point here is the grave clothes were lying there in their regular form and their regular condition as if Jesus' body has just evaporated or dematerialized right out of them. It's just a hollow cocoon. Now, one thing that I think is fascinating when we think about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is never described, it's simply discovered. And to me, this is one of the evidence of the inspiration of the Bible. If some human were writing, trying to write some myth about Jesus, the way human beings are, they would go into a lot of grandiose details describing everything that happened in this resurrection. But there's not one description for us of what happened when Jesus was raised. All we see here is the resurrection uh, is uh, discovered. That's the beauty of it. And the wrappings here, again, may have collapsed a little bit under the weight, but they're lying there undisturbed where his body has been. And the cloth wrapped around his head still retained its circular shape. It's twirled up there. Again, it would have had no heavy spices, so it certainly wouldn't have collapsed. And it's separated from the body by the distance of his shoulders and his neck and his head. And when John saw this, it clicked in his mind and, and he put it all together and he saw that the only explanation is, is that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Remember what we said earlier, Christianity is the only religion in the world where its adherents go to the grave of its founder to make sure he's not there. And, and the almost empty tomb proves he's not there. Now think about the, the wisdom of God because if the tomb really had been totally empty, nothing there, someone could conclude that the body of Jesus was stolen, right? 
They'd grab everything. They'd grab the whole body and all of it, and they would take it out, linen wrappings and all. But the fact that God leaves behind these linen wrappings is incontrovertible evidence that the resurrection has taken place. So the almost empty tomb proves uh, the truth of the resurrection for us. I think it's interesting, two more times in this chapter, John emphasizes that Jesus had the power to enter a room when the door was closed. If you look down in chapter 20 and verse 19, this is uh, the night of Jesus' resurrection. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus just entered the room. He could go right through the walls. And I think John is emphasizing to us that's the same way that Jesus exited those grave clothes. Now look down in verse 26. This is uh, a week later when Thomas was there with the disciples. In John 19, 26, or John chapter 20 and verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So the same way that Jesus is entering and exiting these rooms is the same way that he evaporated or dematerializes out of uh, these grave clothes. Here's something that most of you have heard this, but in case you haven't, this is a great thought. The stone was rolled away from the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let his followers in. Uh, the stone didn't have to be taken away for Jesus to get out. He, he came right out of those wrappings, leaving them in their form. He'd go right through the stone, right through the rock. But the stone was rolled away and thrown down there on the ground so that his followers could come in and discover what was there and to uh, believe in him. Well, verse 9 says about the disciples, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. This means the disciples didn't understand from the Bible the resurrection. They'd seen it now and they believed, but they still didn't understand how to apply the Old Testament Scriptures to the new. And eventually they would learn how to do that. And verse 10 says, So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Remember when Jesus was at the cross? He committed the care of his mother Mary to the disciple John. So there was somebody back at John's house waiting who would have been very interested to hear this news. You think about when John gets back there, he tells Mary what he'd just seen. And he says, I believe that Jesus is alive. Now there's one more person involved in this seeing, but she didn't see the grave clothes. She actually saw the resurrected Christ himself. And I call this the beholding of Mary I love this. Look at verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked at the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now this is the only time I know of in the Bible where angels are sitting. And when you go back to Exodus 25, many have seen an allusion here back to that passage. In Exodus chapter 25, it's one of the great passages in the Bible where God is telling the people to make the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat and two angels or cherubs, a cherubim. And the mercy seat there was where the blood was placed on the Day of Atonement. And I love in Exodus 25, God says, you make that mercy seat and that is the place where I will come and meet with you. 
The only place that a holy God could come and meet with sinful man was a place where the blood of an innocent substitute had been placed to cover man's sin. And that's where God dwelled there in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat. And this picture here, when Mary looks in there, and there's one angel seated over at the head of where these wrappings were, and another one at the feet. Many believe that these picture, these cherubs, if you will, on each side, and that it's showing that Jesus now, where his body was lying there, he's now the new mercy seat for us. That the crucified, resurrected Christ, he's now the mercy seat. That Jesus himself now is the meeting place between a holy God and sinful people. Well, Mary's weeping, and Jesus comes up to her, and he appears to her, and he speaks to her. Why are you weeping? And she supposes he's the gardener. People say, well, why couldn't she recognize Jesus? Well, she's crying. Um, It's still early in the morning. It's probably dark, and the main reason is she's not expecting to see him, right? But Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. And that's an interesting thing for him to say to her, right? But Mary Magdalene, if you remember earlier in the Gospels, Mary Magdalene had been delivered uh, from seven demons. Mary Magdalene had seven demons living inside of her. She was demon-possessed. And Jesus had come, and Jesus had delivered her. And one of the faithful followers Jesus had was Mary Magdalene. You see her time and time again. This is a woman who loved the Lord Jesus because he delivered her. And you think about in her life, she must have been tormented and and in anguish, desperate, and, and dwelled by these demonic spirits. And Jesus had come and set her free. And when she realizes it's him, she grabs onto him. And you can imagine what she's thinking. I'm never going to let him go again. He was gone here for these couple of days, and I thought he was dead. Jesus, I'm never going to let go of you again. I I love you so much. And by the way, that's how we ought to feel about the Lord Jesus as well. Every one of us here, he's delivered us from our sins if we've trusted him. We should love him and cling to him with all that we have. But Jesus says, stop clinging to me. I've not ascended to my Father. What he's saying to her is, Mary, don't hang on to me physically anymore because I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going to be ascending to the Father, and we're going to have a different kind of relationship than we have now. It's going to be a spiritual relationship. So you're not going to be able to cling physically to me anymore. You're going to have to cling to me uh, spiritually. We're going to have to hang on to me spiritually. And that's the message of Easter in many ways, that we have a risen uh, Savior who died on the cross for our sins. He's seated at God's right hand now, and we cling to Him and we hang on to Him in faith and in trust. Uh, for Him to meet our needs. We don't see Him anymore. We can't hang on to Him physically. But spiritually, we know Him, and we hold on to Him, and we cling to Him in life. And all of us here need to continue to cling to Him because we need strength, and we need encouragement, and we need wisdom and guidance um, in our lives. But before you can cling to Jesus as a believer in Him, you have to come to know Him for the very first time. I love us the story by C.K. Lee, He was a Christian leader in China, and he once spoke at a very liberal church in California, and he was urging the people there to give money for others to go and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to China. And one of the students came up afterwards and asked him this question that people sometimes will ask, and he said, why should we export Christianity to China when China already has Confucianism? 
Yeah, why, why do we need to send them another religion? They got a religion already. Leave them alone. Well, e. K. Lee, or C.K. Lee responded with this. He said, there's three reasons why we should export Christianity to China. Number one, Confucius was a teacher and Christ is a Savior, and China needs a Savior more than it needs a teacher. Secondly, Confucius is dead and Jesus is alive, and China needs a living Savior. And third, one day Confucius is going to stand before Jesus and be judged by him, and China needs to know Jesus Christ as a living Savior before it meets him as a judge. And the same thing that was true in China is true here in America and is true of each one of us as well. We need a Savior, and we need a living Savior, and we need to meet that living Savior before we have to meet Him someday as our judge. And that's the question that faces each one of us this morning is, have you met Him? Have you believed this compelling evidence of Jesus Christ and trusted in Him uh, to be your Savior? We live and we die But Jesus died, and He lives forevermore. He is the resurrection and the life. And you need to meet Him while you're here on earth as your living Savior, because every one of us here this morning are going to stand before the Lord someday as our judge. And you do not want to stand before the Lord Jesus as your judge unless you've met Him in this life as your Savior. And you have the opportunity to do that here this morning, to believe in Him, to receive Him as your God and as your Lord and as the one who died in your place on the cross and rose again. I pray that you'll do that this morning if you've never done that. And for those of us who know the Lord, that like Mary Magdalene, in gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done for us, that we'll cling to Him the rest of our lives, that we'll hang on to Him the day of our lives that we need so desperately from Him. Amen. Let's pray together. If there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted the Savior, Father, I pray that you'd work in their heart right now and that they'd meet Jesus, the living Savior, before they have to stand before Him someday as judge, having rejected Him. That they would see this compelling evidence this morning, and like the Apostle John, they would see and they would believe and trust in Him. Oh, Father, we worship the Lord Jesus. We love Him. He's the first and the last, the living one, the one who's dead and is alive forevermore. He's the resurrection and the life. We, we live and we die. But Jesus died and He lives forevermore. Father, I pray that each one of us will leave here this morning like John, believing in Him. And like Mary, so thankful and so grateful for the deliverance that Jesus has given to us. That we will cling to Him all the days of our life as we await His coming again. We ask these things in His dear name. Amen.